Well, the last, uh, the last few days, um, my dad and brother and I have been in Boise, Idaho. Never been to Boise, but we always do this Briggs City year trip the third week of August, and we're all over the country, so we just get together. And uh, Boise was just an amazing, amazing town. Uh, I had no idea how great it is. It's probably one of my favorite cities in the U.S. now. Uh, just an unbelievable place. We were in the downtown area on Friday night. They have this beautiful plaza called the Grove Plaza, and we were just hanging out there. And we noticed that there was this gentleman about my age by himself, and he was just kind of walking around, uh, extending his hand, holding things out. And uh, I thought I was trying to sell something or, you know, sort of events happening Saturday, he's trying to promote. And we're sitting there on a, a, a bench, and he comes around to us, and very monotone, uh, no emotion, he says, would you like a track? So not what we were hoping for. I think we were hoping for some sort of sales pitch instead of a track. Uh, just, it just made us nervous and uncomfortable. Um, and it was just completely monotone. Would you like? Sure. So we tried to play along. We didn't want them to know, you know, we've got three people on staff of a church. <laughs> them are pastors. And so we just kind of played along. And so the track he gave us said, The Shocking Truth. And so I looked at it, I said, oh, the shocking truth. What is the shocking truth? And he said, well, this will get you into heaven. So, okay. So I'm thinking, man, like how far do I take this? Do I kind of brush him off or this, do we want to turn this into an hour conversation? Do I keep faking it? That, you know, so I, I played a little dumb and I said, oh, so is this shocking truth good or bad? And he said, it's good. It will get you into heaven. Okay. So... Noticing the lack of excitement, I said, does this shocking truth give you joy? He said, oh, yes, yes, it gives you joy. Not convinced, <laughs> I said to him, does this message, if you live it out, would it help you love other people better? He was stunned. He just said, yeah, yeah, I guess it does. It really caught him off guard. And maybe the question I was thinking about asking came about because uh, we know that we've been in the book of 1 John through the summer, and one of the big themes is love. I wanted to see what he thought if just getting into heaven track was what it was about or was actually about in terms of God loving us and we love God actually impacts how we love other people. He obviously hadn't thought a whole lot about that. It reminds me, you know, when Jesus is asked... What is the single greatest commandment? He doesn't answer it. He gives two. <laughs> right? No, 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 no. One. No, no, no. He gives two. Because in the mind of Jesus, there's no way to extract. people. When you love people, you must love God. And I wondered, whatever happened to Boise track guy? And he walked away and began to give him out some more. And I thought, maybe I should have asked him some more. But that question still sticks with me. Does this message help you love other people better? You know, today we come down the home stretch of our summer series in 1 John. Um, you may remember back in June when we were up here, we had five readers, and each of the readers read a different chapter. But just by way of quick reminder, you know, John, this beloved disciple of Jesus, is a very old man, kind of writing to others. So when he called little children, because compared to him, they all are little children. And again, he's after two things, love and truth. And again, you love God, you love others, and it's this cyclical 
thing. And the truth that there's a lot of false teachers and false gospels and false teachings that are out there, John says. And John wants to set it straight that God is love and His Son Jesus is the truth. And when we find our way forward, we are anchored on what is true and we find the source of all life. We are fully alive ourselves. That's what John is after. And admittedly, this can be a difficult letter. Um, you know, we talked about this idea of it's not a simple A to B, right? So next slide. This is how most of us think, right? Logic A, move to logic B. Unfortunately, next slide, this is how John thinks and John, how John writes, right? It's very cyclical and it could be hard to find. Simple concepts, but you don't always know where John is meandering. But he always gets back to these two things, love and truth, love and truth. And in the last gathering, Anne shared that Jesus did not come to make God's love possible, but to make God's love visible. Make God's love visible. So 1 John's summary is this. If we're followers of Jesus, rooted in the truth and the love of the Father, then we must be obedient, truth-embodied, and love-saturated. He's not some impersonal being up there, right? The Bette Midler song, you know, um, at a distance. You know, it's very famous. It's very lovely. Until you read it, until you listen to the lyrics and you go, that is so impersonal. That is so not who Jesus is described as. From a distance, he looks down on us and sort of this like polite difference. That's, that's a beautifully sung song that's terribly inaccurate. <laughs> that God loved us so much, it couldn't be this abstract concept. He actually had to come in the flesh to show us to look eyeball to eyeball with people and say, I love you that much. I have to be so close to you. I have to touch you. And I have to die for you. I have to be one of you for you to know how much that I love you. So with that being said, I want to encourage you to turn in your Bible to John chapter 5. And I'm going to read the whole thing. And actually, I was going to read it uh, in my Bible, which I normally just teach out of the NIV. Um, but uh, I'm going to finish using the packet. I don't know how many of you have used the packet uh, this summer, but I've got marks all over it. And it's really fun. And uh, so I'll read out of the packet here. Um, but you can, you can follow along as well as you want. So if you're on the packet, we're going to be on page six uh, at about a quarter of the way down on the right-hand column on your packet. So this is chapter five, down the home stretch, the final sayings of John. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the parent loves the child. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. For the love of God is this, that we obey His commandments. His commandments are not burdensome. For whatever is born of God conquers the world. And this is the victory that conquers the world, our faith. Who is it that conquers the world but the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the, by the water only, but with the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one that testifies, for the Spirit is the truth. There are three that testify, Spirit, the water, and the blood. And these three agree. And if we receive human testimony, the testimony of God is greater, for this is the testimony of God that He has testified to His Son. Those who believe in the Son of God have the testimony in their hearts. Those who do not believe in God have made Him a liar by not believing in the testimony that God has given concerning His Son. And this is the testimony. God gave us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. 
I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know you have eternal life. And this is the boldness that we have. That if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have obtained the requests made of Him. And if you see your brother or sister committing what is not a mortal sin, you will ask, and God will give life to such a one, to those whose sin is not mortal. There is sin that is not mortal. I do not say that you should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that is not mortal. We know that those who are born of God do not sin, but the one who was born of God protects them, and the evil one does not touch them. We know that we are God's children, and that the whole world lies under the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. We are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. That's an interesting way to end the book, isn't it? Little children, keep yourselves from idols. So, because John is simple but he's a little bit all over the board. I'm going to try to teach in a way that's simple, but also clear. Not simplistic, but trying to be simple and clear. So I just want to extract some main things. If you were to say, what are the main topics? What are the main things that we see through here? What are they? And there are several that kind of jumped out at me as I saw these, and I want to share these with you again. Some of them are cognitively easy to understand, (laughs) but the rubber hits the road in terms of actually doing them. Actually doing them, all right? So here's the first one. When we love God, we obey His commands, and we know what love truly is. You say, okay, what is this, like VBS? But that we don't actually love God. We can't just say we love God, but we don't actually obey His commands. Verse 3, in fact, this is love for God, to keep His commands, and His commands are not burdensome. This is what it says in the message. The reality test on whether or not we love God's children is this. Do we love God? Do we keep His commands? The proof that we love God comes when we keep His commands and they are not at all troublesome. John's saying there's a litmus test. You want to know the litmus test of how we know we love God? It's if we obey His commands. We obey His commands. This is radically countercultural because we live in a world that believe that that some of the commands, or even most of the commands of God, or if we live by almost all of the commands, we're probably good enough. But John's pretty clear here. He says we got to obey all of the commands. If we keep all the commands, it's saying that God has the authority in our life as the preferential pick-and-choose model. If I say these commands apply to me, but these over here are too inconvenient. I don't prefer these. I don't like these. This doesn't line up with who I am and what makes me comfortable then all of a sudden we become God. (laughs) We tell God then what we want to choose to obey and what we choose not to. That's a hard thing for us to swallow because we live in a culture that says, man, smorgasbord spirituality, whatever you want, go for it. John is being really simple and very clear here. That's why this is radically countercultural. You know, it's been said That too many Americans have been inoculated with the slight case of Christianity that it's actually preventing them from getting the real thing. And um, perhaps um, this has something to do with how much 
uh, of God people really want. Um, I came across this, uh, this short poem. I'm not always a huge poem fan, but this really spoke to me. I just found this in the last week or two. Um, this was by uh, a gentleman by the name of Wilbur Reese, but he said this. It's called $3 Worth of God. He said, I would like $3 worth of God, please. Not enough to explode my soul or disturb my sleep, but just enough of Him to equal a cup of warm milk or to snooze in the sunshine. I don't want enough of Him to make me love a black man or to pick beats with an immigrant. I want ecstasy, not transformation. I want the warmth of the womb, not new birth. I want a pound of the eternal in a paper sack. Please, I would like to buy $3 worth of God. What we read in John is clearly different than what Will Reese is talking about. If we are to love God and say boldly that we love God, it's that we keep all of His commands, not $3 worth of commands, but all of His commands. And this is clearly not the kind of pursuit that John is talking about in his letter with this poem. So what are these commands? Not just the commandments, the ten. What does God actually command in terms of our obedience? How many of you knew that there are actually 50 commands of Jesus in the Gospels? If we don't know what Jesus commands... the road if we don't know what they are, right? So how can we obey God if we don't know the commands of God? Now, this really convicted me a great deal. I'm not sure I could have listed those. And so I I, I stumbled upon this. It's a little hard to see. I just kind of cut this out and put this in. These are 1 through 50, the easiest way to kind of have it on a small sheet of paper, and I have it stuck in my journal. If any of you want this, I'm going to make sure that we give this to all of our house church shepherds of all 50 of these, and also the passages, if you want it. I'll just include the attachment. But one of the things that was super helpful for me is if I'm going to obey the commands of Jesus, I need to know the, the commands of Jesus. And therefore, what I did is I would just say, okay, there are 50 of them. Once a day, I'm going to read the passage, just a verse or two that relates to the command of Jesus. And then I'm just going to read the next one the next day, and then the next one. So about every two months, I've gone through all the commands of Jesus. Now, some of them are easy to keep. And some of them you go, wow, that's a little bit difficult. And others I go, I don't know if I even, if I'm honest, want to keep this particular command that I'm reading today. And then I'm forced with the, the thought, do I actually believe that Jesus is the master teacher of my life? That if I love God, according to John, if I love God, that I keep his commands, whether I like it or not. So if, anyway, I'm going to have that for you all and this and, and the one that gives the passages if you're interested. But I think it's important. Um, you know, this reminds me of something um, that Jesus says, but there's a line that John uses that just jolted me. And he says, and his commands are not burdensome. And the message, they're not at all troublesome. I look at some of those and I go, whoa, huh, I have to force myself to ask this question. Do I believe that? Do I actually believe that they're not burdensome? That they're actually freeing me up for life? And that reminds me of something that Jesus said in Matthew 11. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. 
If you're burdened by other things, I'm going to lighten your load. He said, take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and I am humble in heart. And you'll find rest for your soul. Not more burden. You're already burdened. I want to lighten that burden. He said, for my yoke or my interpretation, my way is easy and my burden is light. John is not making up this idea that following Jesus is not burdensome. He's simply following what Jesus taught him. It's not burdensome. So I need to just pause and ask us all, me included, do you believe that these aren't burdensome? The simple truth of the Gospels and of John's letter is this. We cannot honor God with anything other than obedience. And the truth is this, that if you look hard enough, you can always find voices and authors and people on Twitter to justify your desire to do the easy thing over the right thing. You want to justify doing the easy thing over the right thing, just look long enough and you'll find it on Amazon or Twitter. And so, very clearly, John says that to love is to obey. To love is to obey. The second thing he draws out is that when we God, we can conquer the world. Now, I've got all sorts of questions that come up myself. What does that mean for me to live in such a way as though it's, the world has been conquered because With all the violence and the heartbreak that is happening in the world today, we again have to ask ourselves the question, do we believe this? Do we believe this? And there's a lot more I could say about that, but I think this will be really good uh, for you to wrestle with even more with your house church this coming weekend. But what does it mean to conquer the world? What does it mean that Jesus conquers the world in verse 5 there? The person who wins out over the world's ways is simply the one who believes Jesus is the Son of God. How is that conquering? And the, the third thing we notice here is this weird trifecta, that blood, water, and the Spirit speak to the truth of Jesus. And what is that all about? Well, water, talking about, it's kind of euphemism for Jesus' baptism. Blood, Jesus' death and resurrection. And then the Spirit that seals all that as a, as a testimony. That his baptism and his death did two things, it purified and revealed God's love for us. Now, in the ancient world, for a document to become official, you needed two and sometimes three witnesses to seal the paper to make sure that it was legitimate. You took someone to court, you had to have two or three witnesses that, yes, that is the person that murdered that guy. So John is saying that to make the person of Jesus legitimate, there are three witnesses. There's the water of his baptism. There's his death and resurrection on the cross, and there's the Spirit who testifies. Now again, testify or testimony, kind of a churchy word, right? I testify, right? What does that mean? If you testify in court, by the way, your job is not to convince the jury and persuade them to what you want them to do. They tell you, do not do that. Your job is not to persuade the jury. Your job is to simply tell the truth that you have experienced. That's what it means to testify. And maybe that would free us up, many of us who are freaked out by this E-word evangelism. To testify is to simply tell people the truth of what you know to be true in your experience. You aren't trying to persuade the jury. You're just simply saying, yes, I was behind that person 
And that red car went through a red light and hit the green car in the middle of the intersection. I testify to that. I saw that happening. And John is saying three things testify. Jesus' baptism, his death and resurrection, and the Spirit, who is described as the Spirit of truth. That God shares what he knows to be true in these three witnesses. This triple testimony, and it says they're in perfect agreement. Perfect agreement. And whoever believes, verse 10, whoever believes in the Son of God accepts this testimony. We trust God who testifies regarding the truth. And then we get a chance to do that as well. The next one um, that is very clear here, John wants to see that Jesus brings life. Verse 12, whoever, ha- whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. It's trying to be very clear. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Imagine if you pursued Jesus, not primarily because he was right or it was the moral thing to do or a good idea or because you've always believed it. What if you actually came to be motivated to trust God because if you pursued Jesus, it was the greatest way that you could ever live your life, your one and only life to its full potential? You know, I think um, back to Boise Tracked Guy on Friday night. that he kept talking about heaven. While it is a benefit following Jesus, that is one of the things that is true, but that is not all of it. I think if, if Boise Track Guy would ask the question, if you were to die tonight, where would you go? And many of us probably heard that or maybe asked that before in our lives. But this idea of life requires a different question. And maybe the better question is this. If you know that you would live for a thousand years, what's the kind of life that what you would live that would give you the most meaning and purpose and hope? Now, both questions are important, but I think we've overemphasized the, if you were to die tonight, where would you go? But what if you live for a thousand years? What would matter? Is it more cars? Is it more money, more fame, a great job? I think we might enjoy that for 50 years, and then we'd go, what are we doing? This isn't meaningful long-term. If I live for a 1,000 years, it would boil down to the things that would bring the life out of me. And John is saying, you want to live to the full potential where you're bored by the things you think are cool now, but in a few years kind of die off? He says eventually we'd get to the things that's the very root of who Jesus is. See, Boise Gospel Track Guy isn't entirely wrong. He's just incredibly limited. Because John wants to see this bigger vision of what it means. When you dig down to the bottom of that question, if we could live for a thousand years, what would truly give us life and meaning and purpose? It would all point us, all arrows in the direction of Jesus. I'm convinced of it. That Jesus brings life. And then this, this last one, or sorry, uh, the fifth one here. Pray like you mean it. <laughs> I don't think there's a person here, if I ask you to raise your hand, how many of you don't think that prayer is that important? Right? I think we're convinced of that. But I think deep down we all struggle with that. 
this, and this is the boldness that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, then whatever we ask, we know that we have obtained the request. Now let me pause and ask ourselves this question again. Do we believe that? <laughs> Do I believe that? Do you believe that? That if I ask anything according to God's will, he'll hear me. Now, I'll, I'll, I'll uh, offer up a confession to you. And I think as I've talked with a few of you, you can relate to this as well. There, it is so easy for me to pray generic prayers. And if I really dig down, get to the root of why I pray generic prayers, it normally comes down to two things. I'm not sure I have the faith all the time to pray specific prayers. And number two, and I'm afraid that if I pray specific prayers and they don't happen, that I'll be disappointed. So it's easy for me to say, oh, Lord, I just pray to have a good day. Just pray, you know, just with us today. And if I'm really honest, the truth is, it's hard for me to be disappointed when I keep it that generic. And maybe I'm not alone. Maybe you all can relate. But can I have at least enough faith to be able to allow my faith and hope to carry me even if my specific prayers disappoint me? I hope so. And I love the fact Tim didn't know what I was going to teach on, but I love the fact that he had us pray very specifically. Very specifically. And the truth is, we may be disappointed. But can we have the faith enough that God, in His good will, still knows? But I also know this. When I've begun to pray more specifically, I'm amazed, and I shouldn't be, because we serve a great God who loves to hear what's on the heart of His kids, that when I'm specific about it, what happens? <laughs> it's not a name it and claim it thing. But if God loves to hear what's on the heart of His kids, and He's a big Father, and He's powerful and in control, why would we hold back from praying specific prayers? And we prayed that tonight, and I hope that our prayer muscle grows. And I think John's wanting us to lean in here in verses 14 and 15 to say, I think we could pray more specifically. And I want to give you permission, healthy permission in your house churches or your spouse or your friend or whatever it may be, that when we're starting to pray generic prayers, that we appropriately and carefully but boldly call a timeout. Say, pause, time out. Let's start over. Let's start over. Praying for a good day isn't a bad thing. Praying that God is with us isn't a bad thing. But if we're followers of Jesus, He's already with us. So we don't need to pray that. We can pray for awareness that He's with us so that we live in more peace today. When I go into that meeting at 3 o'clock with my boss and I feel like throwing up because I'm so nervous, Lord, just overwhelm me with a sense of peace I can't explain at 2 p.m. tomorrow afternoon. Lord, I've been praying for the neighbor down the street, and I always feel like there's never a good time, and every time I try to catch them and bless them or connect with them, would you just this week and the next seven days, God, can you open up an opportunity for me to connect with them naturally that I'll be able to look back and say, God, you did it. Thank you. Those are more specific prayers. So let's all, I, I want to challenge us. It's so almost like you've got an arrow, and it's like a really dull tip on the arrow. I think the Lord is inviting us to sharpen those tips of the arrow 
so that they can actually pierce that target even more. So sometimes when you shoot a dull arrow against a target, what does it do? It just bounces right off. No matter how hard you, you shoot it. And sometimes you can take a very sharp arrow and even pull it back just halfway, and it'll pierce. It'll come sometimes go out the other side. Let's pray more specific and not be so worried about being disappointed about prayer. All right, and then the last one here, which we talked about, John said, stay away from idols. Verse 21, little children, keep yourselves from idol, idols. In the message, it says, dear children, be on your guard against all clever facsimiles. I love that. All clever facsimiles. And I love that John ends this with this ridiculously practical and extremely specific command. Well, what are idols? It isn't just these little idols we see, you know, in Eastern, Eastern cultures. I love this is what St. Augustine said. An idol is anything that we use that should be worshipped and anything that we worship that should be used. Anything we worship should be used, anything we use that should be worshipped. It's taking a good thing and turn it into an ultimate thing. Idols aren't necessarily always evil. It's making it, making it the ultimate thing. A job becomes an idol, not because a job is bad, but because I've placed my identity in it. A child is not bad, but when I place all my identity and hope and future and self-image and worth in a child, that becomes an idol. And we do this, and we do all that we can do to protect our idols, by the way. By the way, when someone threatens your idol, they will see a side of you that is intense and ugly when your idol is being threatened. You threaten an idol, you watch out. You're going to feel the wrath of someone. Because if you're wrapped in it, that idol is wrapped all around you. It's because it's this brief glimpse, this small piece of something good, and maybe even partially true and beautiful, partially. But it's never the entire thing. That's why they're so dangerous. They can actually seem right for a portion of time, or most of it. But ultimately, idols will always leave us disappointed. And to stay away from idols means we have to, first of all, recognize them in the world. We have to name them, right? Because naming things has a way of changing things. We've got to name them. And that's really hard stuff to name an idol in our lives. We have to name our inclination to trust them in place of God, to realize their futility and their danger, and keeping us from living life to the fullest, and then repent of them, to pull a U-turn. You know, of course, the, the eclipse, you know, I know, I think the weavers, are they still gone? I know the weavers took a trip down for the path of totality. Right? Anybody else on the path of totality? Anybody take a trip? Percocy, all right. Well, not, not quite, not quite. That's exactly what an idol does. In fact, that's all an idol is. It doesn't even have to be the path of totality in your life. But it's anything that we say is a good thing. The moon is a good thing. It even looks cool. But it's actually the thing that blocks. During, anybody, you know, actually put the glasses on? You guys get the glasses and do it? Yeah, it was kind of interesting. I mean, we did it on Monday. It was kind of cool with the boys and kind of seeing it. And you guys take your glasses off and look around. It was super, super eerie, wasn't it? It was like middle of the day, but it's like, man, this is like, 
8.30 p.m. Like it's just this weird haze. That's what happens in our lives and when idols doesn't even have to be complete totality in our lives. We look around and it's caused some haze and some fog in our lives that we say, man, this is not reality. This is not the truth. This is not the way it normally should be. So we stay away from idols by naming them. And when we name them as a way of changing them, and that requires repentance, this U-turn, metanoia, to make U-turn. Paranoia, right, is where something, we just keep going round and around, we're worried about it, we overthink it. But metanoia, not paranoia, metanoia is doing a U-turn. I've missed the exit on the turnpike, therefore I need to get off and actually go the opposite direction now. That I Repentance, again, just like prayer, we can go generic. Lord, forgive me of my sin. Be very specific. And when we're specific and we feel shame and humiliation in that first moment, that's good repentance. And like, Lord, I'm a sinner, forgive me. But what you really want to feel is you say, Lord, I told that person plus or minus 10% of the truth last week. I flipped out on that customer. I clicked on that website. I shouldn't. I withheld a little bit on the tax form. When you get more specific, repentance is more meaningful. It's more weighty. Right? I think you've heard me tell the story before. Right? I think a lot of men in this room have bought diamond for their wife. Right? You go to the jeweler, right? And they will never pull out if you look in the case, I'll, can I look at that ring? They'll never put it on the glass, right? What do they always do? They put the black pad down and put the diamond on top of it. Why do they do that? Because the stark contrast of the black on the shimmering diamond, they want you to go, wow, that pops. That's exactly what happens when we're specific with our repentance. In the blackness of who we are, Jesus comes and he says, I love you and I forgive you. And that grace shimmers all the more. All the more in our lives. See, when we live beyond ourselves and we acknowledge that we cannot save ourselves, we are admitting that we need help from someone beyond ourselves. And we need help. We are stuck in our sin. But the good news is that we can testify to this. Is that the good news is that we do have a rescuer who, who we have access to, who isn't some theoretical concept in the skies, but came down to be with us, to crouch down, to look at us in the eyes, to touch us and say, I love you, and I give myself for you. And so John wants us, as followers of Jesus, to obey God's commands, to know that belief in Christ is how we conquer the world, to know that baptism, Jesus' death, and the Spirit speak to the truth, that we bolt our lives to the foundation of Jesus, we pray like we mean it, and we keep ourselves from idols because we'll never be able to love God and other people if we're rooted in our idols. No wonder he ends with that. If his message is about truth, his message is about love, where else would you end other than stay away from idols? And so God is love, and a loving God, and loving God without loving people is impossible. Loving God without loving people is impossible. Uh, Jared McKenna, um, he said, don't just tell parables, be a parable. Let your problematic, messy, grace-filled life start with the phrase, the kingdom of love is life. 
John wants us in this little letter that we've looked at this summer to say that because of who Jesus is, that the kingdom of love is like, and then we live out that parable in our lives. Well, there's a song that I just heard on repeat. Um, it was by Brian and Jen Johnson called For the One. And as I keep saying, this is John. And so we started by reading the whole book back in June of 1 John. And I'd like for us to just end with the song. And uh, so I want us to just reflect on this song, think about this song, uh, and then I'll pop up and, and pray. But the message in this is just amazing. Um, so let's listen as we reflect on 1 John. And maybe you want to go back through your packet or your notes uh, or, or read for, uh, flip through 1 John again. But let these words uh, sink in because this is the message that John wants us to understand.
As we've journeyed through the book of 1 John this summer, um, I, I, I know that Doug and I, our fear was back at the beginning of the summer that this would just be some sort of new intellectual information for our church. Lord, I am encouraged by the stories that I'm hearing of people that are going much further than just knowing more things about one of the letters in our Bible. Actually, living it out in more radical ways, pressing in even further to love others. Lord, may we move from being like Boise track guy to actually being kinds of people that as you've loved us with your arms wide open, that we would be the kinds of people that would extend our arms even more in this messy, uncomfortable, sometimes complicated world to bring about the simple message of saying, because God loved us first, we love other people now in response. And then we cannot divorce loving God from loving people. Help us to be those kinds of people that we just heard in that song. It's easy to talk about loving and forgiving until we actually have to do it. But we want to do that in a way that honors you. So give us the faith to do this. Give us the joy to be able to do that. In a world that needs desperately the witness of the church, especially in North America, to be one of love. Give us that opportunity and give us that courage to do just that. For the world to say that despite what I see on television, those people that gather in the borough of Lansdale are not the kinds of people I see on TV. Instead, they're hospitable, and they're loving, and they're caring, and they're humble, and they listen well, and they serve, and they anticipate needs, and they forgive quickly, and they confess quickly. May we be those kinds of people that live out the commands of Jesus, not because they're burdensome, but because they're light, and that your yoke is easy, Jesus. Help us to do that and to be that. And when we don't, we thank you for your grace and your patience with us that you'll forgive us and say, let's keep running after love together. Love and truth on either side of us with Jesus in the center. And it's the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.